Truth Jihad Radio is 100% crowdfunded and therefore fearless and independent. Please help us stay that way. You can subscribe at my Substack. That's kevinbarrett.substack.com. Or you could send a one-time PayPal donation to truthjihad at gmail.com. Welcome back to the second hour of Truth Jihad Radio. I'm Kevin Barrett, bringing on folks from all over the world with interesting perspectives, often ones that you're never going to find in the corporate-controlled media. So let's get back to the topic of the pathologies affecting current civilization. What's really going on here? Is it some kind of long-term Spenglerian collapse that we're experiencing, leading to the kinds of issues I talked about with Lyndon in the first hour? Or is there some kind of a political, psychological pathology uh, spreading mostly among elites and infecting whole societies? Is that another way to look at it? Well, one of the experts who has developed that kind of perspective is Harrison Coley. He is the publisher of the founding father of Ponerology, author of Political Ponerology, Andrzej Lobosuski. I had Harrison on the show a long time ago, more than a decade ago, might have been closer to 15 years talking about various issues, including my essay, Twilight of the Psychopaths, which was probably read as much as anything I've ever written. And Harrison has a substack. He's been putting out great stuff. And tonight we're planning to talk about his analyses of Marxism, or Marxism, as he calls it, and wokeness. Is there a political pathological element to these <laughs> ideologies? Let's hear it from the man himself. Hey, welcome, Harrison. How are you? Hi, Kevin. Great. It's good to be back. Yeah, it's been about 15 years, maybe even a bit longer than that. Yeah, boy, time really uh, goes by. And, you know, you, you still look really young, but you, we're not getting anything <laughs> from your camera since this is radio, so you might as well save the bandwidth and, and click that camera icon off. Oh. Uh, not that I don't enjoy talking to you, but it'll save uh, save me some memory space as I record the show as well. So, yeah, your your uh, edition of Political Ponerology, which, as I recall, was published by Red Pill Press, it's one of the more influential mm-hmm. books I've read. And it applies the science of what the psychological analysis of uh, psychopaths or sociopaths, as some people call them. One, I think sociopathy is just the behavior, and psychopathology is the psychological analysis of the psyche of those who are committing the behavior. Uh, it's it's very powerful, important stuff, and especially when we realize that psychopaths tend to rise in power power hierarchies because they don't have those handicaps that ordinary folks have. You know, they can lie like they breathe and they can kill like you can squash flies. Uh, that is really, a, once you sink your teeth into that realization, you realize it explains a whole lot. <laughs> so, but usually this hasn't been applied so much to the left side of the political spectrum, which traditionally has been considered the side of, you know, the, the moral uh, analysis, the effort to improve things, the reformers and so on. But you do this uh, in, in your articles on Marxism and wokeness. So maybe you can quickly introduce uh, political ponerology and then apply it to uh, to these new leftist ideologies. Sure. Well, I'll actually start just a little bit at the on the second part of that question with the new leftist ideologies, because this new paper came out on left-wing authoritarianism. And I won't, I'll save the details for after answering the first part, but this paper came to a lot of conclusions that were very similar um, and like resonant with Lobachevsky's work in political ponderology. So I wrote this article, as you mentioned, uh, Marxism is Real, where I kind of summarized the article and then 
um, compared it, <clears throat> compared its conclusions and some of the statements they make in the article to the things in Lobachevsky's work, which, to give some background, was written in 1984. As you mentioned, it's published by Red Pill Press, but it was only published for the first time in uh, 2005, I believe, 2005, 2006. And uh, we just published a, <clears throat> a new edition in 2022. That's the one I edited with a new introduction, a forward by Michael Rechtenwald, a um, whole bunch of new footnotes and sources and extra um, like new bits in there, un- bits that were previously untranslated. And the that, the backstory of it is that Andrew Lobachevsky was a, uh, a psychologist, a clinical psychologist in Poland. <clears throat> and he graduated right around the time that uh, the communists took over in the he graduated in about 1950 early 50s maybe 51 and uh left the country in the late 70s to go to the US he'd been arrested three times uh tortured um he was basically on the on the radar of the the secret police for being um you know a um a kind of troublemaking psychologist who had the wrong ideas or dangerous ideas and so in like 77 i believe he he decided it uh, it was probably safer to to get out of the country because he might not come back from a fourth arrest and so moved to new york lived there for the at least the 80s um he went back to poland when communism fell so in 1991 or so so throughout the 80s he uh, early 80s he wrote this book which he'd previously written in poland but um, through various mis- mishaps and having to leave the country with basically nothing, it had to rewrite it from scratch. So he wrote it in the early 80s, got it translated, and then finally in 2005-ish, got it to Red Pill Press, <coughs> was finally published. The main thesis of the book is that communism, as he experienced it and as we call it, was actually there, is, is probably better understood as a psychopathological phenomenon. Um, as he calls it, and you know the, the the psychologist that he worked with called it a macro-social psychopathological phenomenon. So we might call an individual instance of a personality disorder as a psychopathology, but when um, when you get a group of people with personality disorders who then gain control over a country and then influence the the atmosphere of the entire society, that would be a macro-social phenomenon. And of course, with when you're dealing with personality disorders, when you've got uh, you know borderline personality disorder, whether it's a mother or a girlfriend or a father, or psychopathy, can be again any family member. You have this dynamic, this this psychopathological dynamic, because um, such parents are are often or probably always abusive in some way, maybe not violently, but emotionally. And the kids that are raised in that kind of experience, or if uh, if you go through a, like a romantic relationship. Um, with someone your own age, then there there are similar, different but similar dynamics. What you might you know that uh, well that can be quite difficult to to uh, recover from. You know, it can leave you with basically PTSD like like symptoms. And so, Lobachevsky's main point was, as I said, was that communism was a psychopathological phenomenon, and the the essential feature of that was the presence of psychopaths in the essentially the the top positions. So he had this analysis, this entire analysis. Uh, it's a it's a long book. It's a complex book. It's got a ton of details, and we can get into a whole bunch of areas we'll, um, of that, or we can you know we can tie we can tie all that in with the left wing authoritarianism thing, the left wing authoritarianism thing, because uh, to to come back to that subject, um, as you mentioned, Kevin, for 
for decades, <clears throat> at least in the research community, and that probably um, that probably carries over into the just the popular beliefs to to some degree, maybe even a great degree. People thought that the that the bad things, bad political things, were the the province of the right exclusively. So we have a, a Canadian psychologist named uh, Bob Altemeyer who wrote on what he called right-wing authoritarianism. And so that's been kind of like the standard for the study of authoritarianism for, for decades. And he basically defined it, defined authoritarianism as right-wing in nature. And because as he put it at the time, I think this was like in, I think it was in the mid-90s mid that he he said this. Well, basically, the, the reason that I call it a right-wing phenomenon is this, is because I just can't find any authoritarian authoritarianism at the, on the left. And, um, well, while that may or may not have been true at the time, it's definitely not true today because in the, um, well, you can just see it, but now the research community, like research, like research psychologists are kind of catching on. So just in the past few years, there's this, been this interest in left-wing authoritarianism. And that's looking at, well, is there, is there such a thing as left-wing authoritarianism? And, uh, so, um, a couple, a few years ago, one of the first papers, written with a bunch of other authors, was by uh, a young researcher named Tom Costello, who I interviewed on my podcast, uh, Mind Matters, and I wrote about Well, I can't remember if I wrote about it, actually, but I, I definitely uh, referenced it. And he defined left-wing authoritarianism basically as a combination of three traits, because um, there are, well, there are three traits to right-wing authoritarianism. Uh, let's see if I can remember them off the top of my head. There's like uh, conventionalism, um, kind of submission to authority. And, uh, can't remember what the third one is. It might be actually social dominance. That's at least an aspect of it. So the, 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 the wish to be in charge and basically tell people what to do and coerce them into, to doing what you tell them to. And in the right wing context, that would be to, you know, basically keep the status quo, uh, respect the authorities and, um, abide by any existing social conventions. So in contrast to that, the left wing authoritarianism, is um, categorized as um, anti-conventionalism, top-down censorship, and anti-hierarchical aggression. So basically, um, a, a strong revulsion to existing um, and prevalent norms. This can be societal values, and then um, and the societal structure, the, the structure of society. And then the the aggressive kind of coercive aspect comes out in these last two, which is top-down censor censorship. So this would be, this is actually kind of something somewhat in common with uh, right-wing authoritarianism. Um, this is the kind of support for the, the central authorities or for an authority to censor um, any dissenting views, any, any disagreement from the other side of the political spectrum. And then anti-hierarchical aggression, basically the belief that the, the right thing to do is to use violence to tear down the existing system and to, to replace it with, um, well, a new system. And the, the nature of that new system is what uh, Lobachevsky gets into in particular. Mm -hmm. Right, yeah, so there is a, a link between this uh, supposedly new notion of left-wing authoritarianism and what Lobachevsky saw in communist countries that actually mm -hmm. gave rise to ponderology, which is that communism itself, a left-wing movement, is full of psychopathology. So uh, it sort of, you yeah. know, you wonder, well, how, why does it take them this long to, uh, to find this? <laughs> I suppose it would probably be, as you said, that things are changing over the years back, you know, 20, 30 years ago, 
the left side of the spectrum supported the ACLU, you know, when it defended the Nazis' right to march through Skokie, Illinois, a Jewish suburb, uh, waving their swastikas, because mm-hmm. every viewpoint needs to be respected and have the ability to get out there in the public uh, square. And no matter how you know terrible you think the viewpoint is, we have this marketplace of ideas. Everybody could come out there and exchange their ideas, and there shouldn't be any censorship. So most of the left in the United States at least, seem to believe that, and then they characterize their opposition, the right, as wanting to shut down free freedom and free speech. And now it's the mm-hmm. opposite. Now, of course, it's the left that's doing most of the censorship, and we see this kind of authoritarianism coming on in, in all sorts of ways. Everybody has to get the COVID jab and away, you know, kneel down before the great Saint Fauci, and, you know, everybody has to hate on Trump, the evil right-wing figure, and uh, ignore the deficiencies in the supposedly uh, left-wing gangsters like Biden, who aren't really that different from the right-wing ones like Trump. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it seems that things have, have changed a bit, but still it's, it's, it's kind of interesting that it took the uh, psych- psychology researchers this long to catch up with Lobachevsky. Yeah, and I think part of that also is that, um, as with the academy in general, um, there's just, and especially in psychology, I mean, the majority of, uh, well, I, now, I don't have figures at hand here, but I'd, I'd guess and I'm pretty sure I'm right that the majority of psychologists are A, women, and B, overall, the academy in general is overwhelmingly liberal in uh, in composition and in, in demographics. So they're by nature, they lean left. So as you said, they they were living in a time where the left was seen as more reasonable and they probably saw themselves as more reasonable. So it was very difficult for them at the, as a community and as an individuals to see kind of the bad side of how things go. And you see that, you see that still where, um, a lot of what I would think of as, you know, reasonable liberals or, um, or more centrists, you know, people that can kind of, um, maybe go both ways a little bit is that they can't, they, they, they just, they, they seem incapable of seeing how leftism could go bad. And of course, you know, communism is this big elephant in the room. Well, but maybe, but maybe that wasn't real leftism, right? And I think that one of the things going on here, which I get at, at the very end of my article, <clears throat> is uh, I make this point that, that these monikers, these conceptualizations of left-wing and right-wing authoritarianism are basically, they're context specific. They're like, they're relativistic. So when, when you have a certain personality type, and so I'll use the, like psychopaths as kind of a stand-in here, but there are, you know, there are others. It's not just psychopaths. It's various kinds of psychopathology or personality disorders. When you, when they're not in power, they're going to be left-wing because they're, they're going to want to tear down that structure to be in power. When they're in power, they're going to want to stay there. So they'll be by, de- by definition right-wing. So the, in a sense, these are, these are hats that can be put on and taken off depending on the context. It's not like someone by their very nature is a left-wing authoritarian or by their very nature is a right-wing authoritarian. Although maybe that might be more true of some than others. But when it comes down, when it comes to psychopaths who are notorious manipulators and who as Hervé Kleckley, the, you know, initial and one of the best researchers on psychopathy called it, they have, they put on a mask of sanity. That is like, they're the, the prototypical con man they know how to manipulate people. They know how to present um, present a personality pr- that will get your guard down and th- that will make you like them. So 
and that's how they that's how they get women that they then proceed to abuse and ruin the lives of that's how they get that's how they get grandmas to give their life savings to them um so when it comes to politics it's the same thing they'll use a, a political platform and this was this was actually the conclusion of um of these researchers um i should say their names uh Anne Crispins and Alex Bertrams both German uh research psychologists and the way they put it um in the in, in the end of their abstract they say considering these results we assume that some leftist political activists do not actually strive for social justice and equality but rather use political activism to endorse or exercise violence against others to satisfy their own ego-focused needs. And so the way that Lobachevsky put, puts it is those ego, it's not just ego-focused needs, or that's a big part of it. They're out there, what they want to do is to take political power to institute a new social system in which they are not the persecuted ones. So imagine like a pedophile. A pedophile would want to get into power so that he could create a system where he could get away with having sex with children, with raping kids. Because in a normal society, we know what happens to pedophiles when they're found out. He would prefer to be the one in power so that he could be protected. And, of course, we see that in the, the Franklin scandal and a whole bunch yeah, of others like where that. exactly that kind of thing happens. happened. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's not a theoretical example. And yeah. so those guys, like the in the Franklin scandal, would you you could call them right-wing authoritarians. But if they're the – if they're – taken part in a, in a BLM or an Antifa protest, you'd call them left-wing authoritarians. Right, yeah, I noticed in the libertarian movement there are some of these people, apparently, who, who find it's a kind of convenient place to uh, uh, say that, hey, you know, freedom extends the freedom to love children, right? And, and mm-hmm. likewise, in, in kind of the, the gay movements uh, in San Francisco, I lived in San Francisco in the 80s, there was that contingent of, uh, of these uh, uh, pedophile types, and so, mm-hmm. yeah, they obviously are using those kinds of movements as a way to, you know, defend their own you know, self-image and to try to get what they want and get away with it. Yeah. Um, let me find there's a there's a quote from Lobachevsky that I had in my article. I just want to find it because that's it's it's probably perfect for. Well, that that would be a perfect example of it. Um, I can't find it in the next three seconds. I'm going to just kind of summarize it on my own, but uh, oh, okay, no, I can't find it. Basically, he said that uh, that there are kind of two reactions. Well, psycho psychopaths and and people like pedophiles, people with these kind of underlying, um, you could call them sicknesses, disorders, diseases, um, however you want to characterize it, they. They feel persecuted by society because, in a sense, they are, because they can't fit in by their very nature and for good reason. And so they have certain, they have certain motivations for wanting to turn over the power structure and they'll feel aggrieved and, and want to tear everything down and invert the social structure. But there will also be people that just, um, you know, you could call them normal people that just as a course of everyday life and circumstance are oppressed or, um, you know, are downtrodden for some reason. Could be they could have a valid grievance, and so you have these two different motivations that get mixed up in a social movement. And the the like the normal people that just want um, some kind of like actual justice, it might you might say, don't really realize that there's this other this other motivation that's using the their 
their grievance as a mask, as a Trojan horse to, to, to bring in, to bring through this, this alternative and really destructive element. So you've got these two motivations and one person's kind of like, um, totally unaware of what's going on. So if you use the, the gay movement as an example, you could say that, that a lot of the L, like the LGB movement, as long as they were able to, to self police and be like, no, we have limits, then they were, they would have been relatively healthy in a, in the, in a, like a psychopathological sense. But when you cease to be able to identify the really crazies and to exclude them from your movement and kind of set really hard red lines, then the, the movement will degenerate from there. All, like clockwork. It's just going to happen. And so, and I think that's kind of, that's what we're seeing. Um, that's why it's now, as Justin Trudeau said, you know, said the other day, 2S LGBTQ plus IA or IA plus or whatever it is. It's like, it's, it's, um, and it, soon we're just going to add a P to that and just, um, you know, be totally open about it. But that, that's, yeah. So the, the, that, that's what Lobachevsky calls the first criterion of ponerogenesis or the genesis of evil is the inability to recognize the pathological within one's own group, within one's own social movement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the left is maybe extra vulnerable to that, you know, due to the sort of aura of that, you know, we're, we're the good guys, we're the reformers, we're the open-minded people, we're the smart ones, you know, mm-hmm. operating against all of these bad, entrenched authoritarian traditions, prejudices, and so on. So there, there, I think there's a kind of a stronger ideological uh, you know, po- power uh, element going on, you know, a, a, a more... Uh, shall we say, you know, both both more highly developed and more energetic uh, on the left. You know, they, the the right is basically just sort of being normal and sticking with tradition, and doesn't really need mm-hmm. so much of an you know, ideology to do what it does. Mm-hmm. And and so mm-hmm. uh, on, on the right, they're they're not they're less prone to this. On the left. Hey, if if you're if you're on our side, you must be the good guys. I think you see this with with the left and like with Antifa. Antifa is actually acting exactly like the kind of the brown shirts and the other sorts of bad fascists that they claim to oppose. And yet, a lot of people who think of themselves on the left liberal side just completely can't see that. They imagine that Antifa must be the good guys because they're going out fighting the evil Trump-loving fascist Nazi, Confederate Nazis. Uh, mm-hmm. and I think the ideology on the left has blinded a lot of those people to the reality of what these Antifa people are really doing. You know, they're just going out and, and, you know, beating people up and shutting people down and censoring people, you know, being the first to attack, the first to use violence. Uh, and, you know, in every way, these Antifa people are actually making the right wing types look good. It's, it's kind of ironic that, you know, that not only are they, they being the real fascists themselves, but they're providing really beneficial publicity for the people they profess to hate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I don't really have much to add to that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, what, what do you think about the, the way that the norms sort of change? And like yesterday's, you know, liberal is today's conservative in that yesterday's, you know, left wing liberal, who thought that, you know, homosexuality was okay and, you know, maybe we could even have gay marriage or something like that. Uh, that, that person was sort of off on the edges of the spectrum and, you know, a, a radical even. Today, it's the opposite. There's sort of this, this new norm 
that involves like everybody is supposed to accept gay marriage. Everybody is supposed to accept homosexuality as a perfectly normal and natural thing. It's no longer the sodomy that our ancestors thought it was up until a couple of generations ago. And anybody who disagrees with this is now marginalized. So there's a new conservatism, a new kind of establishment. And the so-called left, it seems to me, has actually kind of become this establishment. And I think that explains a lot of, of what's going on and the way that the left authoritarianism ends up being just as obvious now as the right authoritarianism always was. Well, that's because the left is now the right. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a tricky that's a that's a tricky question, because I think there's there's so many factors to take into account. And I think that like something you said at the, the beginning of the of the talk here is that. Like, I know that you and I both, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, were more on the more on the left end of the spectrum back, like, after 9-11, for instance. Mm-hmm. And and so it's taken it's taken the 20 something years since then to, to watching these developments to kind of to kind of see. To then be able to look back in retrospect <clears throat> and see, well, what the hell happened? And I think there's a lot of there's a lot of things to take into account. So at the top, you mentioned that your that your previous guest had talked about like Spengler, Spenglerian uh, cycles, and I haven't read Spengler, but I'm I am a fan of Peter Turchin's work. And Turchin he does something he calls cleodynamics, which is the scientific study of historical dynamics and secular cycles. And he argues, and he's got the the graphs to prove it that the western civilization basically is at this crisis point in its secular cycle and the secular cycles are basically the 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 rise and collapse of nations it's periods of stability and growth followed by disintegration and this could be the the fall of empires it could be you know mass famines uh, civil wars um, major wars with other nations these are the types of things that tend to happen at the at the tail end of these secular cycles. So we're kind of, it's kind of a perfect storm that we're in where all of the conditions are rife for political polarization and strife, even civil war. And the elements that have gone into our our particular conditions, you can go back um, and and you look at just the the ideological trends over the past 70 years, how you have, um, like James, I like Jim, I like some of James Lindsay's work looking at the, the kind of the background, the, the ideological background of woke where you get into, well, you know, you can start with Marxism, then you work through the, the Frankfurt School coming over to, to, to America and cultural Marxism and then up through the, the intersectional studies. And so you have, of course, like, Queer studies and gender studies and black studies and uh, um, and post-colonial post-colonialism and you have this kind of all of these all of these similar and compatible intersectional ideologies um, kind of working their way through the the higher education system to the point where that kind of solidified and gained solidified as a or it gained strength and solidified as a movement and has now kind of um reached the point where all of those all of those 
students in university have become teachers and are now teaching kids. And so you have basically more than a generation, but this last generation has kind of just had so much influence, um, influence at a, at a rate and under conditions that weren't, that didn't exist, say in the fifties, for instance. So that's one aspect of it. And then, um, as like for how it all fits together, it, it seems it really is, a it still is a mystery to me how it all came together and happened. What the advantage to a perspective like Lobachevsky's is, is that the, in a sense, the details become not as important and the exact historical, uh, like, like a historical flowchart doesn't become as important as the kind of essence of the phenomenon, which is, well, what, so what's actually been happening has been this steady saturation of various important social nodes, whether it's an ed- education or politics. Um, you could, you could look at it in terms of the, um, the, what's it called? The, 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 the rise through the institutions. What's that phrase? The, I think it's from Gramsci, the, um, the long march um, through the institutions. Yeah. And so you look at all these, all these nodes, all these points, and they've, they're all becoming, they all, they have all been for decades becoming saturated with more and more pathology, whether it's in the form of, um, just ruthless, selfish, psychopathic individuals, or these pathological ideologies, which then resonate with a lot of people who are feeling, um, who are feeling injustice or feeling a grievance. And the, the conditions, this kind of late stage civilization, end of a so- secular cycle conditions where, um, like relative wages are at the lowest point they've been since like pre civil war in the United States. And people are basically while things are relatively good, people are still feeling it. And especially given COVID after the, um, after the lockdowns, businesses are closing. Like there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of conditions for, um, depression, anxiety, suicide, and for latching on to these, um, these ideologies that kind of promise something better. So that's just, those are just a couple more aspects that, that, I see is playing into all of this. And then of course, um, because for whatever reasons, this, this breed, this brand, this breed of ideology has been, has, is the one that's, um, kind of won the Darwinian struggle for, for supremacy at this time. Then that, that is, is then kind of weaponized and instrumentalized by the people both pulling the strings and pushing for certain other changes. So that's why wokeness is kind of, it is the ideology of the great reset, for instance. So whether that was planned or a coincidence, it's, it's just a fact. Um, I, I really recommend Michael Rechtenwald's book where he kind of lays all this out, the, the great reset and, uh, I always forget, and the struggle for liberty. That's the name of that book. Yeah. And I so I have him back on the show to talk about that. I don't think I ever discussed that book with him. Oh yeah, you should. I had him on Mind Matters, and he's always great. And um, yeah, yeah, I, I love I love that book. And so it's it's just this this perfect storm, this perfect combination where everything just fits into fits into place in lockstep. So not only do you have the the, the kind of the, the people with the most influence behind the scenes and on international or how do they call it global governance, so this kind of like a um, weak global global government. 
um, world government. You've got Schwab and all his cronies and Fink and everyone, and they're all kind of on board with this revolutionary ideology. Well, what's the revolution that they're they're trying to instantiate? It's uh, it's certainly not what they what it's what they want it to appear to be. It's not in their official language. You have to kind of read through the read between the lines to see what they actually want. And what they actually want kind of sounds like a, um, you know, a neo feudal slave state where there's this tiny minority who kind of owns and has everything and everyone else. Um, well, sorry, you're just not going to be able to drive your cars anymore or have uh, or to heat your homes. I mean, that's they kind of want to bring civilization down a few notches and um and it just so happens that the the ones on the top will probably be the worst of the bunch. That's just the way these things tend to work, and that's kind of what Lobachevsky is warning us about. Mm-hmm. So, what, what do you think about the? I don't know if you've encountered these uh, Strauss and Howe uh, cyclical generational yeah. theory, but uh, mm-hmm. that seems to me to be kind of uncannily accurate, or at least it, it you know, it, it's it's interesting how they they posit this. 80-year cycle with, you know, 20 years per generation, so you get four generations equals 80 years, and they see these bloody uh, ideological explosions uh, happening in the United States every 80 years from 1780 with the revolution, which is really a, just an incredibly bloody civil war between the, uh, the, the pro-empire and anti-empire factions to 1860, the U.S. Civil War, 1940, World War II, and now we're in the early 2020s, and things are going completely crazy along similar lines. And if we look at each of those conflicts in the past, the damn Yankees won. You know, that's what the Southerners say about the Civil War, but it's true in all cases that in the American Revolution, it was you know, the predecessors of the damn Yankees who, who really won that over the more sort of quote-unquote conservative side, uh, the Yankees being these kinds of Protestant-inspired uh, reformers. Uh, who they don't like human nature, they don't like tradition, which embodies human nature, and so they jump into some ideological crusade to make things better, and it all turns into a bloodbath. So it happened with the American Revolution, it happened with the American Civil War, it happened uh, with the World Wars, especially World War II, although, of course, the U.S. was the you know, slow uh, the slow country to get in and the biggest beneficiary, and some would argue the country that most instigated the war. And here we are in the 2020s, and the U.S. empire is at this crisis point. Will it take over the world, or will it collapse? And the Yankees, the damn Yankee reformers, wanted to take over the world, because they, they want to inflict their American liberal ideology on the entire planet. And that calls mm-hmm. for destroying the traditional inherited civilizational paradigms, both at home and abroad. So it seems to me that the woke culture, the Great Reset, all this sort of thing is the damn Yankees of 1780, 1860, and 1940, once again uh, waging their crusade against all forms of tradition. And they're drunk on ideology, you know, whether it's the anti-fascist, uh, ideology of 1940 or the uh, you know, anti-South uh, ideology of 1860 or anti-British Empire ideology of, uh, of 1780. And, and that uh, you know, drunken ideology generation 
which I think Strauss and Howe talk about as sort of a fourth turning, and I forget what they call that generation that does the, the bloodbath and then has to rebuild a, a new world afterwards. But mm-hmm. I think I think that's where we are. So, you know, and Strauss and Howe seem to think that the, the real motor driving this cycle is uh, patterns of child raising, that each generation kind of reacts to its parents' way of raising children and goes off in a particular way, direction, and then raises their own children in a, in a, a way, in a different way that's based on their reaction to the way they were raised. And that that process mm-hmm. then drives this uh, cycle of you know, four 20-year generations into an 80-year grand cycle. And it, it all sounds mm-hmm. pretty goofy and arbitrary until you start looking at the details. And yeah. it certainly predicted these past events, and it seems to be predicting what we're in now. Yeah, I've I've got a little bit in one of in, in the glossary section of the new edition of Ponderology. I talk a bit about Strauss and how I, I kind of like their theory too. Um, I'm not sure, like I'm not I'm not sure how much of it is is kind of like astrology, and I'm not dissing astrology. Um, actually, you know, I've got nothing against astrology or astrologers. Some of my best um, friends are astrologers. Yeah, exactly. And some of so, them just identify but, but as the, astrologers. <laughs> in the sense that um, it's it's hard to know without kind of a a big statistical analysis how much how much is is kind of reading the theory into into history and how much is actually there. But I but I I agree it def, it definitely does look it does um um it does look convincing and I liked and I liked what I read when I was looking at it. Now that said. I mentioned Turchin, both Strauss and Howe and Turchin, both using their different methods, identify this period, like the early 2020s, as the crisis period. So as the fourth turning and as the 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 kind of um, the peak of what Turchin would call uh, political instability. And so I think that's an interesting coincidence. And I think there's definitely something to the generational aspect to it to the the the, the way that the, the, like the changes in the way uh the way children are raised because we definitely see that and you can see that come out in the research of like gene twenge and jonathan Haidt and greg lukianoff um twenge's got books on um she she's a <clears throat> she's a psychologist i believe that that researches generations um not uh not necessarily the the Strauss how cycles, but uh, just the different generations like Gen X, Millennials, Gen Z, and uh, whatever the newest generation is called, and and then of course Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff with their their work on the coddling of the American mind, and their they they point you know they observe the the total change in the in the way kids are raised and the way parents are. So nowadays we have parents who are having fewer children. And so a lot, there's a lot of single child households and those single children are treated kind of as little princes. Um, kind of like you, you saw the same thing in China in the, um, like in the probably the nineties and the two thousands with the, the one child policy where the, the one child is treated like gold because you've only got the one. And so they're kind of spoiled and it's kind of the helicopter parent thing. And so kids these days, you know, they don't just go out and wander and, uh, and, just as one example, they don't go out and play on their own. They don't get into adventures. Their parents are always either with them or, 
you know, a phone call away and the, the kids aren't, teens aren't getting their driver's license because their parents are driving them everywhere and, uh, they, they don't want to get their driver's license and a lot of kids are afraid of getting their driver's license. So there's definitely these generational, um, differences and that will, of course, play out in, um, somehow in these, these kind of like large scale political dynamics. And Turchin, he doesn't, he doesn't analyze any of that, but his, but his model is, or he doesn't take into any, any of that into account in his model. Um, but his model does capture, I'd say kind of the, bro- maybe the broader dynamics because the, the secular cycles tend to be, um, a bit longer than that, depending on the, the nature of the, the civilization. So in agricultural civilizations, they tended to be, well, I'm, kind of have to go back in my memory. I think it's like 150 to 250 years. Like it can definitely vary based on circumstances, like based on the different like um, inputs into the equation, basically. And so that's why in um, like in czarist Russia, I believe it was during the like 1800s, they had an, an, an abnormally long um, kind of middle of the cycle. And that was partially because there were like territorial expansions that basically gave, gave access to new land and um and that factored in so that the, the, the so that cycle was kind of like artificially extended in that case and um so what i'd be interested in is is kind of a a, a scientific study even if even if turchin were willing to do it or someone kind of like comparing the two and see how they overlap and how they don't because they're totally different inputs basically but seem to come to at the very least compatible results um so in Turchin's cycles, he doesn't see World War II, for instance, as a, a crisis period for America or for the United States in particular. That basically, you know, if they hadn't gotten gone into the war, there wouldn't have been a civil war at the time. You know, there wouldn't have been any collapse. And then after the war, of course, you you saw the the as you mentioned, kind of the the the, ex, the extraordinary growth in influence and power of the United States. Um, what the the two secular cycles that the, that the United States has gone through have ended in like one in the because the United uh, well have ended one in the Civil War that was the first kind of end of a secular cycle in the United States and the second one we're living through. And but he does mention that there are there is this kind of like cycle within a cycle that has to do with with political instability. And we saw that in the sixties, like in the, in the late sixties in, in the United States. So, um, well, for anyone who's interested, I'd recommend just checking out both, you know, Strauss and Howe have, of course, the fourth turning. And then Turchin's got a new book coming out in a week or so. And I think, I can't remember the name of the title. I think it's something like the end of the elites or something like that. He's got, a, he's got one that he wrote specifically on the, United, on the United States called ages of discord and he's got several other several others like War and Peace and War and Ultra Society. Um, you know, I, I've read a bunch of them, and I, I think they're I think they're all great. Yeah, he's he's written about the elites versus the counter elites, right? Yeah. And, and supposedly that as a new generation comes up that doesn't have enough positions for mm-hmm. educated people, then you get counter elites. You get disgruntled. Uh, you know, ambitious, educated people who can't find a decent yep. job, and then they uh, they start coming up with some kind of anti-authoritarian or you know anti-establishment ideology to justify their uh, their anger. <laughs> and uh, the next thing yeah. you know, there's a big fight. Right, and to get what they deserve, and that's 
so an interesting correlation in in Ponderology, one of the things that Lobachevsky writes about is that is what he calls the socio-occupational adjustment. And what that basically is, is does your level of talent could be your like your IQ, your your general level of talent, your general intelligence. Does it match? Do you basically do your abilities match your placement in the the work world? And you can with that. Like with that said, you can have two pathological versions of that. You can have someone who's upwardly adjusted, that is an incompetent person who's in a position that they shouldn't be um, because they just can't handle it. They're not smart enough. They don't have the talent. So this could be, you know, an example. A funny example was uh, one that went around social media several weeks ago, maybe a couple months ago of the like, I think it was the first um, Finnish in Finland, the first Finnish trans um, figure skater, right? And if you see the video, like this person, this man cannot figure skate. It just, it, it looks like a, a bad joke and it was, it's very, it's hard to watch because it's one of those, like the office cringe worthy moments where you see this person who's just making a fool of themselves. Um, and you see this in a lot of like battle of the bands too, like, you know, with, uh, just people who have no talent who either think they do, but then get, but then the, in the socio-occupational adjustment sense actually get promoted. And of course we see that a lot of that today with, over promotion and people who really don't deserve to be in the positions they're in. But then there's also the under adjusted ones. So these would be the talented people who are stuck in positions like, you know, basically serving burgers where that's, that's not, that's not the job for them. Um, they, and, and they, they know that and they feel resentful. And so he's, Lobachevsky said that when, when this is out of whack, when you have too many people who are under adjusted, too many talented people who aren't in a position where their their work and what they get from their what they get for their work is kind of proportional to to what they deserve essentially then that is a revolutionary scenario and what Turchin basically said and this he came to this totally um like non-theoretically this was completely empirical based on his um based on his modeling of all of these factors he found that pre-revolutionary conditions the biggest pr predictor for um for societal crisis whether it was a, re a revolution or a, or a civil war was this thing you mentioned elite overproduction and that is when the country is producing too many too many elites and they don't have anywhere to go and so they get resentful because one of the examples he uses is in the context of the, of the united states law degrees so he puts out the chart of law degrees over the last century and how in periods of political instability, the number of people getting law degrees goes up, 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 because what is one? Well, because law degrees are one of the or probably the highest um, predictor or like a requirement or not, not requirement, but the, the the best predictor for getting into politics, basically, like the, the number of people who get into either Congress or the Senate, the number who are lawyers is better, bigger than, you know, any other profession. So people see this and it's a high paying job. So people, they, they, they decide, okay, well, I want a law degree because I want to potentially be in a position of political power and I want to make a lot of money. But at the same time, as you get all of these people, all of like this kind of exponentially rising people, number of people getting law degrees, well, the number of positions isn't rising. So you get, you get a whole bunch of underpaid lawyers who are not making 
what they expect to be making. In Dri- fact, they're making taxis, way less than delivering pizzas, right? Like driving that. taxis, right? And meanwhile, the high-powered lawyers are making more than they were previously. So you have all of these disaffected, um, essentially elites who then want to change things to get what they feel they deserve. And this ties into another thing that Turchin talks about, which is the only revolutions that have ever worked, that have ever been successful, are the ones where a counter-elite has essentially used the power of the masses to some degree to to get what they want. Whenever it has been the peasants by themselves against the, the ruling elite, they've never won. The only revolutions are the ones where the kind of like part of the managerial class get in on the action, like the like the Bolshevik revolution. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting analysis. And that holds in, a, in an unusual way for the uh, Iranian Islamic Revolution of 1979, in which the counter-elite was largely the uh, clerical class, that is, religious scholars, mm-hmm. who were kind of mm-hmm. treated like dirt and you know seen as old-fashioned and so on, uh, where while their actually their scholarly work was quite advanced. I mean, that was the last place on earth where genuine Western classical education was actually transpiring, was in those mm-hmm. seminaries. So they were intellectually very high powered and the social, but the social position was looked down on because religion was looked down on. And then there was kind of a fusion between that clerical class and I think some of the other counter elites, the more, you know, in the more secular world, which then reacted mm-hmm. against the secularizing tendencies by joining with uh, with those uh, clerical people who were behind uh, Imam Khomeini's project, so yeah, I think it did mm-hmm. work out that way there, uh, and that's a you know an example of a particular an interesting kind of counter elite. And frankly, I, I sympathize with that model, and I would like to see like spiritual religious counter elites uh, taking a piece of power and ins- creating an institution in which that mm. spiritual power acts as a balance to the secular power. I've talked about this with mm-hmm. uh, Peter Simpson on this show. Uh, it seems to me that this uh, secular dictatorship situation we've been in for uh, since the uh, Enlightenment actually hasn't worked out so well, and that we, in some mm-hmm. ways, were better off when we had that independent spiritual power, uh, and that the uh, Iranians are sort of pioneering the way back towards a better system. Of course, that's an unusual view, apparently, in the West these days, but uh, I would defend it. Well, on that subject, one of the interesting, one of Lobachevsky's projects, this is something I'm working on right now, is is putting up translations from another of his books called Logocracy. And he, he mentions this in, in passing and briefly, and it's kind of threaded through without being stated explicitly in Ponderology. Basically, um, well, in Ponderology, <clears throat> at the very end, he talks about logocracy, basically saying we need a new form of government because the ones we have haven't worked out too well. And they you know, they've all got weaknesses that we've kind of we now have a pretty good idea of what those weaknesses are. So logocracy was his attempt to to um, to lay out kind of the sketch of what he considered it to be a system, as he put it, better than democracy. And one of the features is. He, he doesn't have an independent power for religion, but, but the religious authorities have a, an important, an important place in the, in the kind of social and political structure. So the way he, the way he laid it out, um, and this is something that he mentioned in Ponderology is that he, he thought there should be what he called a council of the wise. And these would be people that have, um, have some kind of, 
um, advisory and almost veto power over certain things in government. And one of the conditions in the book Logocracy that he lays out for them is that none of them can be atheists and that it would be the council of the wise that would be the kind of intermediary between the religious authorities in a given society and the political, and the political authorities. And he even said that, uh, um, like he thought there should be conditions and requirements for, first of all, gaining, gaining what he called civil or civic rights, which would be kind of the right to, the right to vote. And then parliamentary rights. And part of the, part of the requirements for parliamentary rights is that he thought everyone that would be, um, put, you know, striving to put themselves forward as a, as a congressman or as a senator in, you know, to use American lingo would be, have some degree of education in religious studies. So he definitely, th- he definitely saw the need for a more, um, um, for a greater influence of the, the religious authorities and for a greater kind of cooperation between the, 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 re- like the religious institution and the political institution. Yeah, that's really interesting. It, that idea of the advisory council sounds a little bit like the guardian council in Iran that both elects the supreme leader, and it is elected itself by the people, uh, but it, it elects the supreme leader and it then has a role in uh, approving or in some cases vetoing prospective candidates for high office and, and things like that. Mm. Uh, but mm-hmm. yeah, I, I, I do think that, that you know, we, in terms of those larger cycle, the cycle of going, you know, moving to a very materialistic, uh, and a materialism, you know, philo- philosophically materialistic framework over the past few centuries may have reached a dead end. And whatever comes next will probably involve, um, finding a way around that dead end. You're getting past that roadblock into a new world in which we're, in some sense, we're returning to the, the pre-enlightenment world in which it was just taken for granted that the, you know, kind of, uh, classic religious spiritual descriptions of reality are actually accurate and that materialism mm-hmm. is not. So, yeah. Okay. Well, we're, we only have a couple of minutes left. So. Oh, wow. Maybe we can <laughs> send you or send the listeners to your Substack and to your, uh, your new version of political ponderology, which I actually don't have. I have, I only have the old version. So tell us about how we can uh... find this. Okay, well, maybe I'll, I'll have to send you a copy. But for, for everyone else, um, you can find my Substack at ponerology.substack.com. That's P-O-N-E-R-O-L-O-G-Y. Political Ponerology is the name of the Substack. And for the, the book, I've got a link on the main page of the Substack. But you can also just search, um, Search Amazon. You know, we don't really care if you buy on Amazon. I know some people do, but I mean, I, I think just reading the book's more important. Getting the book is more important. Or you can go to to the publisher, our website, um, redpillpress.com, and find it there. If you're looking for it on Amazon and you're not sure what what the if the edition is right, it's got a a black, really technically a, a very dark blue cover. It looks black with four pills on the on the cover. Um, well, five pills. And with various um, little logos on them, and it's got a forward, as I mentioned by, or did I mention it? Uh, it's got a forward by Michael Rechtenwald. So that's the one that you'll be looking for. Should be the only one that's kind of the, it should be the first one that comes up if you search for it. And uh, yeah, that's uh, 
that's probably the oh and I, well and I also like I mentioned I have a, pad, a podcast too so if you're interested in that um, it's called Mind Matters one word or no space Mind Matters and we're on YouTube we kind of do it's it's backed up on Odyssey and um, it's audio on all the major podcast platforms. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Harrison Coley. You've influenced uh, my life and thought uh, quite a bit. Uh, you're th- the high on the list of those who have by way of your work with political chronology, which got me interested in the topic of psychopathology applied to politics, which does explain a lot about what's going on in the world. So keep up the great work, and God bless. Great. You too. Thanks. Okay. Bye-bye. It's Harrison Coley, Kevin Barrett here of truthjihad.com or kevinbarrett.substack.com. Back next week, same time, same channel, inshallah. See you then.